Best Friends Finance, because when women talk about money, it's worth a million. Welcome to Best Friends Finance. I'm Laura Ford, and I'm here today with my co-host, Amanda Kessler. And we empower women to take control of their financial lives by talking about money with friends. Today, our guest, Shade Ashani, came to us from a dear friend of mine who forwarded me an email one day, and it says, what does your relationship with your dad have to do with your bank account? And it's an interesting angle on, Amanda, how we spend money, what our relationship is with money. And it all we know that our money stories from our childhood set us up for our money in our adult lives. So can you tell us a little bit about Shade? Shade is a breakthrough coach who's dedicated her practice to healing what she calls ancestral wounding. And what we mean by that is if you're going through the motions, you're doing the work, you're going to yoga class, you're reading all the right books, but you're feel, still feeling stuck, this has helped getting out of that. She spent 10 years working toward her own freedom and created her offering Dreamline that process for others. Before becoming a breakthrough coach, Shade graduated from Columbia and then earned her master's in public health from Tulane University. She has interviewed hundreds of women between the ages of 18 and 75 and found an absolute difference between girls who grew up with and without their fathers. And that shaped her life and her work as a coach, a mentor, an author, and a speaker. She gained a profound understanding of the different ways women are wounded by their fathers and then go on to live as if those wounds were the truth. Shade wrote a book called In Search of My Father about how healing her relationship with her father set her free to experience healthy love and wealth. She's toured the country, keynote speaking at conferences, high schools, and colleges, and getting her arms around as many women as she possibly can to tell them that they are worthy of love. This is her life's devotion, and our conversation with her was truly worth a million. Shade is an active philanthropist, and we don't we didn't get to talk about this in this episode, but we want to share that she has raised half a million dollars for her nonprofit, Kids International, in hopes of making a difference in the lives of orphan children around the world. She was even honored by Congress for her work as a goodwill ambassador to the Gambia in West Africa. Welcome, Shade. We're so happy to have you here with us today. Thanks for joining us on Best Friends Finance. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here and have this conversation with you. This is a super interesting conversation because when Laura actually found you and brought you to me and we both of course looked at everything we can find your blog your TED talk and gotten really excited about the conversation of with money being shaped a lot by the relationship with their fathers so we always start with just give us a little bit about your background we're really interested to know how going from we're getting your master's in public health led to your research about fathers and daughters and in this relationship and how it shapes us as women sure so my name is Shade I am a breakthrough coach for women who are having issues with their relationships with men, money, and themselves. Yeah, I help them have healthier relationships in those spaces. Where I got started, I was 19 when I was a freshman in college at Columbia in New York City. And I had a group of about six girlfriends and we were all brilliant, beautiful, talented. We were all dating jerks. And I thought, (laughs) this can't be a coincidence. And so little researcher at heart that I already was, I gathered us all into my tiny dorm room and was like, we're going to get to the bottom. What do we have in common? What's going on here? And sure enough, dad was absent, abusive, neglectful. Something was going on with dad. And this huge light bulb went off for me and completely uh, changed the course of my life. It became the foundation of my research in grad school. And it's been the mission. It's been every keynote conference, every TED 
TED Talk, all of it has been about um, this topic. How do fathers impact our lives and really set um, the mold that we have to contend with one way or another? Shade, I would just want to ask, how does one who has this absent relationship with their father, how do you end up at Columbia? Is it is it your mom's doings? Is it your own perseverance? I mean, I'm assuming that he was absent not only in the present, but also financially. Sure. So uh, my father left our family when I was 13 years old. He said that he was going to go on a business trip for six months. And he dragged that on for 12 years until his death. And I never spent longer than two weeks at a time with him again. So what started out as why did he go very quickly became why wasn't I good enough for him to stay? And I internalized that. I got my boy first boyfriend within weeks of him leaving and started acting out. How did I end up at Columbia in spite of that? My mother was largely influential in my life for sure. But but I was I was gifted and, and brilliant from the start as, as a child. And I actually ended up dropping out of high school in the 10th grade and spent uh, what should have been my junior year of high school at the Rape Treatment Center of Santa Monica. And it was there with some really incredible world-class therapy three times a week that I was able to come back to myself. And yeah, I got that 4.67 GPA I was capable of and aced those SATs <laughs> and made it to the Ivy League. So I feel very aware that because my trauma was met with support, I was believed. That's huge. Many women are not believed, especially young teenage girls are not believed when they're assaulted. Yeah, that I was able to have a success story for my life instead of one of uh, continuously addressing and acting out trauma. So really grateful oh, for that. That is unbelievably inspiring that you were able to turn around, obviously, such a traumatic event. We often, we, we always ask our guests to give us their money story. Like, the, the what are your first memories from childhood of what, before he left, your father shared with you about money, what you learned from your mother about money? Was it something you even talked about as a family? Interestingly enough, money in my family was very much dictated by my mother. So one of the things that I ask my clients to do is close their eyes and, and personify money. Who do they see when they do that? So for me, money was a white woman. My mother's white and my father uh, is black. And my mom was the one who represented signing checks and uh, making major financial decisions, buying houses. She's somewhat of a, a real estate mogul. She owns four houses now. She's powerhouse. And so uh, that's what I remembered about money was money and mom went together. And uh, when things got really rocky in, in my teenage years, financially, you know, sold uh, my childhood home and filed for bankruptcy, I remember money being associated with like fear and anxiety and resentment. So that's really what I remembered about, about my childhood story with money. And one of the exercises that I asked my clients to do, which is to write a letter to money and write a letter to men and see what comes up, is that there was a lot that sounded the same. I want more of you. I don't understand you. I'm scared of you. I'm mad at you. Why aren't you there when I need you the most? You let me down, pointed. Like, yeah, that could that could be written to either of them. We were going to ask what your dad, because this is something you talk about, what your dad has to do with your bank account. And I'm seeing connections right there in what you just said. Oh, yeah. Well, fathers have a really important social role, which is to protect and provide for their children. And so when they don't do that, money can sort of get entangled in this story where it's not just that our dads 
abandoned or uh, neglected us or didn't show up for us. It feels like money did too. And then um, they become intertwined where we feel similarly towards the experience that our father was meant to provide for us, protection, provision. Just like, well, if I didn't get to have it, then I must not on some level have been worthy of it. And that becomes internalized. I think that out of the now thousands of women that I've worked with over the past 13 years, that seems to be the underlying thread that goes through it all is, is unworthiness. Unworthiness shows up in our relationships with money and it shows up in our relationships with love. I feel like that's that's really what comes forward for me is that love and money are both worth issues. And if we're having issues in love or in money, we're actually having worthiness issues. And that's what really needs to be addressed. What do I believe I deserve? What have I been conditioned to allow? Our childhoods kind of set us like the AC. This is as much love, money, peace, well, comfort as I'm allowed to have. And when we start raising the bar through coaching or self-help books or, you know, trying to address, you know, the pain that we've experienced, we find that some sort of internal mechanism kicks in. And then we sabotage ourselves back down, not necessarily to what's comfortable, but just what's familiar. Underline, highlight, family. <laughs> That's what we've known. And so the work of actually expanding so that we can hold more wealth instead of, you know, ending up like one of those lottery winners. We've all heard the stories, right? Where they end up pulling the Lamborghini into mom's townhouse after they've blown it all. Like, how can we actually hold more than what we've known? How can I have more than the experience of my parents instead of repeating the story of debt or bankruptcy or feast and famine kind of, yeah, that re repetition feeling is actually increasing our capacity to feel our own worth. And that sounds very esoteric, but it, it actually just means letting yourself pick a standard and holding that repeatedly. You talk about that all of us are building our adult lives based on the blueprint of our childhood. And when I read your blog and learned more about you and, and what you were bringing to so many women, I shared with Amanda that, I mean, my entire childhood was me seeing my mom not be able to pay and afford our electricity and food and stuff like that. But what I didn't take one step further until I looked into you and what you're coaching and teaching was that everything that she was missing that couldn't afford was all contingent upon my father who left her when, you know, I was two years old, not bringing by the child support and leaving it in the cabinet. You know, and I told Amanda, maybe two or three times out of 10, he actually followed through and did what he was supposed to do. But, you know, it wasn't until my mid forties that I was able to see this cycle. And that's when I started having my own light bulb moment went on for me about how I did not want to live the rest of my life around money. And it all stemmed back to what I thought I had seen my mother doing. But in, when you dig even deeper, like what I'm sure that your course will pull out from people was that it really stemmed from the lack of money from my father and the support. And I mean, all he didn't protect us. He didn't support us, any of those things. It's just, yeah, thank you. I think, I think that, you know, really starts getting revealed for us when we notice how we feel about money. I, even just talking about it, even just saying the word, it, how are we behaving with our, with our bank accounts, with our finances? For a lot of us, there is an emotional charge. We are avoidant. We don't like it, you know, scrunch our noses up. Even if I just say money, you know, in a crowd of women and see, you know, kind of what happens. How do you feel? Close your eyes, money. And people have reaction. There is an, there is a, an emotional charge regarding this word. Many of us see, you know, unlike me who saw, you know, a powerful woman, many of us see men, specifically white men who are bankers or, you know, some sort of loan officer who's telling, telling us that we're not good enough to qualify for the loan on our own and we need daddy's help or, you know, whatever the storylines are that make us feel small and uncomfortable and avoidant, overly miserly. We overspend based on some sort of like, I deserve it attitude 
that we haven't even double checked if we can really, you know, make space for those <laughs> um, expenses in our spending plan. Totally guilty of that one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've been there for sure. Mm. Uh, but actually coming to peace with my relationship with money just started out with a coach asking me to just look at it every day for a month, just sign into your account, look at it. And so my reminder, you know, that pops up on my phone is check your abundance flow. And every day at 1 p.m., I stop what I'm doing. It doesn't matter if I'm, you know, in the middle of the grocery store or whatever, I'm going to log into my, put my banking credentials in and have a look at my account and just see what comes up. And it was really hard. I really hated this assignment because I was a classic avoider. I didn't want to look. I was just going to write the check and set things on auto draft, right? For the best. We talk about that all the time, that so many women are wired that way, avoidance when it comes to money. And this is, I always say, I wish we had a video. We don't, we are on video now, so we can chat with each other, but we, this is just an audio podcast so we don't have to do our hair. No, just kidding. Um, <laughs> okay, not really kidding. But I want video because when you said, what do women think when you feel, when you say the word money and your face was just like, you know, cringing, gasping. And why, why do you think that is? I mean, you have talked to Ooh, I have so hundreds of women. Yeah. Why yeah. is that? One, the way that math is taught in this country is geared to work really well for the minds of young boys. And many of us are, you know, even before before the age of 10, before our nervous system is fully set in, we're just taking in the world, birth, birth through 10 in that way. We are already out loud saying things like, I'm not good at math. I'm not good at that. I like reading and writing better. And that's really across the board for women in, uh, in the Western world. I remember feeling that way so clearly by like fifth grade, just out loud saying, I'm not good at math. I'm not good with numbers. I bet I'm better at, um, at literature. I like English better, blah, blah, blah. And, um, and really believing that and feeling that, which was not true. I finished pre-med in the Ivy League. I did a minor in statistics. I'm actually great at math. <laughs> and even, even now saying that feels funny to me. It's like, yeah, but it's not my favorite. I'd rather, you know, do, do something else. But the truth is money is just numbers and numbers are just addition and subtraction. We've got this. This is not hard stuff. It's been presented to us in a way that makes us think that it is, but it's not complicated. It's something that I, I'm really excited to see the feminine reclaim that, that we can do this. The world is in desperate need of rich women. We've tried rich men for a while now. Let's spice it up a little bit. So we think the way math is taught is definitely one of our, our barriers. Do you feel the word shame has come up a lot on our podcast too? Women and shame. And I, I gotta say, I've never heard a man talk about feeling shame. And, and that doesn't mean they don't. It's just not, a, a, you know, I think Brene Brown, I think, you know, shame research is generally, you hear this from women. Do you feel in your research in these conversations you're having that women have more shame around the choices they've made or their past when it comes to money that that makes that a more difficult conversation? Absolutely. Like far and away. So I've, I've done some work with men, nowhere near as as many men as, as women in this work. But, you know, occasionally someone I'm working with will say, you know, you've got to talk to my brother, friend, husband, uh, boyfriend, etc. And, and I'll do some work with him as well. And two things that really stick out to me in this space is that when a relationship ends, I have find men don't spend nearly as much time on the, what did I do to attract this person? How could this have happened to me? You know, really in, internalizing the shame of the relationship not working out, especially if we're talking about, you know, abusive behavior, 
neglectful behavior, they seem to really be able to place the onus where it belongs, which is on the abuser or the person who hurt them and, you know, push it outside themselves. But, you know, of course, there's the double-edged sword of that. We're not self-reflecting and acknowledging uh, our part in that. But there's something really beautiful about being able to say, no, that person hurt me. That was wrong. And I didn't deserve that. And I'm moving on with my life. Next. And I, I find, you know, as I've mentioned before, that love and money hold very similar energies. So it's like, if we've made a mistake, or we find ourselves in debt or, you know, we, we put a, a big investment in on something that didn't work out. It seems to me that men are really ready and willing to move on from that without internalizing it as some sort of reflection of their ability or worthiness. Uh, and I'd love to see more women take a page from the masculine on that. I always say that A, internalizing is, at least in my household, such a female characteristic and, and I'm working on not internalizing as many things as I do. But also compartmentalizing is my husband rocks at it. He can He's like, oh, there's an issue. I will put this over here in this box on the shelf and I will not worry about it again for you know the next six to 12 months until I absolutely have to where because I'm going to think about that thing in the box every single day. So you're right. Like there's there's some self-awareness that may be missing. But on the flip side, I have to say I'm often envious of that ability to say, Nick, you know, I'm not going to let this weigh me down. So interesting. Yeah, it's really beautiful. I, I do love that about them. And I think that as, you know, as we move forward to empower ourselves financially and, you know, really claim that we have a right to wealth and that there isn't anything more special or wonderful about anybody else who has access to it. It's time for us to find like the, the feminine way and the feminine path, which isn't necessarily exactly what it looks like for men. One thing that has really come forward for me in the past few years has been clarity surrounding the the relationship with the divine, where when we have clarity that if we wanted, you know, enough money for, for the mortgage at the end of the month or the rent, or we wanted our business to be blessed all over the world, all over the world, we, you'd be praying to a woman if you wanted help with those things. Whereas in the United States, in the, in the Western world, you know, we've, we've got a very clear image of God as a man. And I think that that in and of itself is like, is about us opening that door a little bit and making space for feminine face of God, the Holy Spirit as Shekinah, feminine face of God, and being able to see ourselves as divine, as wealthy. One of my favorite mantras is to look in the mirror and say, this is what a wealthy woman looks like. So I just wanted to back it up just real quick to you graduating from Columbia. This is not what you intentionally set out to achieve once you graduate. Can you talk a little bit about what led you down this path to where you are today? Sure. When I arrived at Columbia, I was determined to be a doctor has always been about healing for me, the sort of internal compass, healing and helping people. And I started volunteering in a hospital and it was a game-changing day. Um, a little boy came in, he had been shot in the shoulder I was working in Harlem Hospital Center, and it was one of the most intense, dangerous uh, hospitals to, to be volunteering in. And I'll, I, yeah, I'll never forget it. I was listening to um, all the other volunteers and these, uh, you know, all these white lab coats all cuddle, you know, huddled up talking. And uh, they were talking about like shoulder damage and the shoulder blade and how they were doing the muscle, blah, blah, blah. And it was like, none of this mattered. I wanted to get in there and hold his hand and tell him that he was lovable 
and worthy and beautiful child and that whoever threw him out of the back of that van didn't care about him and what the heck was he doing you know in any of these scenarios it was the middle of the day and uh, I knew then looking over at them talking about blood vessels and whatever else that I was not a doctor it's like oh those are doctors these are physicians that's what they care about that's what matters to them and there is nothing wrong with that that's beautiful and important and we need people who care about blood vessels in these kinds of scenarios but it's not me and it was yeah it was like this lightning bolt moment like I can't apply to medical school I'm not a physician and I didn't know what the heck I was going to do with myself anymore because I was most of the way through the pre-med curriculum and yes I I think in some ways I'm still answering that question I will probably eventually get a PhD in counseling but I had been speaking at high schools and colleges along the way and trying to find as many young women as I could to wrap my arms around them and tell them that just because their dad wasn't there that it didn't mean that they had to date jerks the rest of their life. And it's kind of funny how how that happens. This thing that you are so passionate about and so inspired by, you um, can sometimes not take it seriously and think it's just this thing that you do, um, but you have to find something else more serious <laughs> to focus on. And I thought, what if this, you know, speaking in sorority houses every Wednesday night thing could be bigger? And I spent the next 20 years an- answering that question. That is so fantastic. And I have no doubt you've made such a huge difference to so difference to so many young women. So clearly you have got you have done the work and put in the time to, even though he's he passed away before you probably could do this in person, heal your relationship, heal the trauma from your relationship with your father. And you've written a book about it, uh, In Search for My Father. With that healing process, how did that change your perception, your feelings around money and wealth that were associated with that relationship? All about worthiness. Did it did that change? I mean, if if that was night, then this is day. Yes, it definitely changed. I I was having a really hard time liking money. I, you know, I sort of like threw the pendulum the other way and was like, we don't need this. I want to just want to go back to some sort of hippy dippy world where we, you know, I'll trade my blueberries for your raspberries and let's just all be brothers and sisters again. This isn't working. You know, I got really like anti-capitalistic for a while there too. It's just like the rich keep getting richer and we are, you know, really hurting people with this. And I had a really hard time, really hard time with money. And I like maxed out all my credit cards and was like, I'm not paying anything back. These are, you know, (laughs) I don't even know what I was really thinking. One of the things I've learned is we shouldn't give 18 year olds credit cards. That's for sure. Certainly not ones with $20,000 limits. Yikes. I think when I decided that money was neutral, that in all of the experiences I had had with money where I felt enraged or let down uh, and really, you know, really got down to like the nitty gritty of it. Once you're out of your childhood, whoever, whoever, who I was really mad at was myself in the, you know, burned business partner experiences or the, I can't believe I bought those fancy boots or whatever. It was really about me and my, and my relationship with money. So I went through all my money memories from the start of very first thing that I could possibly remember, like grandma smacking my hand and saying, don't put that in your mouth. Money's dirty at like three all the way to last week. Just kept going through and going through. What are these memories? And so many of them were laced with resentment, anger, disappointment, shame, anxiety, 
I was kept looking for the recurring characters and I found, okay, here's mom keeps showing up with resentment. Men keep showing up with anger, right? All right, let's, let's have a look at this storyline. I started putting these puzzle pieces together and the ways that I was relating to people was really far more important than the ways that I was relating to money. Money was actually just helping me see with, uh, with maybe more intensity, bringing sort of like a microscope down on the relationship and the interaction. What I actually needed to clear up was, was me, was my boundaries. I was way out of line. I was like blanketing compassion over really inappropriate behavior with men and trying to help them save them and then get mad when my $5,000 goes missing. That's not how it works. <laughs> and so, yeah, I got to get really clear with money that money never meant me any harm. Money wasn't thinking about me. Money wasn't up late at night, worried about what I was doing. This was about me. When I gave myself permission to be wealthy and to put boundaries around my big, beautiful, compassionate heart that longs to help people, everything changed. I think the, the most important decision that I made was uh, to keep charity work out of my love life. I can do charity work. It doesn't belong in my love life. You know, I recently, I follow you on Instagram and I have a friend that is dating and she's, you know, mid forties. And you recently shared a post about how you responded to someone. I think you're talking about a, a client of mine who was responding to a guy named Blake, who's now... Uh, Instagram famous. <laughs> and I'm reading this and, and she talks about the boundary or screenshot it and I sent it to her and I was like, it just resonated with me to be able to send to her as she was, you know, having her own struggle with men. What a difference that that made, not only for me, I'm not going through that, but that I was able to, you know, share that with a dear friend. Yeah, Can you tell so us a little bit about Blake and maybe why he's <laughs> Instagram famous now? Yes, I can. So what, what Laura's uh, referring to is uh, one of the things that that I love to, to support my clients in is, is dating accountability. Because, uh, you know, as I mentioned, when we're raising that bar up from what we've known and we're trying to have a different experience, it, it can be really scary. It can be really uncomfortable. We need accountability and support in those moments to have a different financial experience, to have a different love experience. So she and I were, were uh, in, in full accountability circle. She had to send me every expense that she uh, accrued during the time that we worked together and every interaction that that she had with a man during that time. So this is a this is one on one on one work. And this guy she had been dating uh, didn't message her back for two days, and then finally messaged really late at night, like after eleven o'clock, I think it was. And she messaged it to me the next day, and I was like, absolutely not. <laughs> Forty eight hours later, that's anarchy. <laughs> no, and, and and it was a lame message. It was like, hey, you awake or something like that. And I just I remember telling her like, this, this isn't what you want. You've told me what you desire. Is this it? Is it your future husband can go forty eight hours without talking to you and then sends you a middle of the night message? Is this what you want? And she had. Like, no, this isn't what I want. She was an, an incredible woman. She had her own health coaching business. She, she owns her own fitness brand. She's doing all this cool stuff. She's bright and brilliant and funny. Like, no, girl, it doesn't take a whole day to recognize sunshine. If And part of this is really allowing that worthiness piece to come in. But it, it's no longer about, is he good enough or am I good enough? When we release the draw to that our egos long to prove that we're good enough, and then maybe he'll change his mind. We just like step out of that, like, oh, you're emotionally unavailable. That has nothing to do with me. Bye. And we take our power back. Instead of trying to figure out how to tap dance for his attention and affection, we just step out of that game. 
we just allow ourselves to jump in. Same thing with facing our current financial situation, releasing what it's supposed to look like, what we think we're supposed to be doing, where we should be by now. That's huge for us as women, I think. And just be willing to look, just see what is, face reality without judgment, without shame, just what it is. He's emotionally unavailable. There's $500 in my savings account and I wish there was 5,000. Okay, let's work with it. I love that. It is what it is. Thank you. Yeah, I really, I was really proud of her because I know that was hard for her. She liked him. He was very cute. He had a bunch of things on paper that she wanted, but he seemed, you know, like she couldn't quite get her hands on him. Wasn't, she wasn't sure when the next date was. She wasn't and feel stabilized by this person, which was very familiar for the little girl within. That uh, push-pull, the I don't really know where I stand with you, the, you know, can ego can get very excited about, you know, proving. Then you get to feel that rush of like, he changed his mind for me. He picked me. And yeah, essentially what we're doing is just playing the storyline over again. You be dad. I'll be me. Start this from the top and we'll get it right this time. I'll love you so much. You'll stay sober this time. You won't hit me this time. You'll stay. You'll pay child support this time. I mean, all of those things. Yeah. And just being willing to get out of the story. Like, oh, you're emotionally unavailable and you remind me of the pain I knew in my childhood. I don't actually want to replay that story or rewrite the ending of that anymore, which means you actually have to go through all of the chapters all over again. We seem to forget that part. Tasha, I think that's so profound in talking about you're bringing that blueprint to to your adulthood, your blueprint from your childhood. But it sounds like in so many cases, our adult life really needs to be, if we, if we dealt with any of those issues in childhood, it needs to be the opposite of our blueprint. Like we need to build from scratch. We needed to get out some new paper and start over and, and recognizing the programming you're bringing from your childhood and starting new. I'm, I'm sure that's incredibly challenging, but so important. It really is. I teach my clients that we actually have to learn how to be attracted to what's good for us and that that sparkly chemistry can't get enough of him checking my phone for his messages feeling is actually usually rooted in our addiction to chaos drama friction what we're sensing is possibility of being able to fix something yeah and that the nice guy may actually feel quite boring like a friend at first and that the heart actually opens slowly over time and trust is built and similarly with with our finances I didn't want to do any of it it all felt very boring to me I uh, was not intrigued by it I wasn't excited by it I bought all all the books I was supposed to read, I could barely get through them. It was like, I don't want to do this. Why am I having such a hard time with what I know is good for me? And finding a plan that actually works for us and giving ourselves permission to find our own way, the feminine way, what feels good to us, um, I think it is really important is that there isn't any way that it's supposed to be. There isn't a way that your money should look. What you get to find is what works for you. And what, what worked for me was having two checking accounts. This was some really practical advice. One is where the money goes in. There's no debit card attached. So I'm never walking around with the ability to swipe away the rent. And that's where big things pull from, utilities, car payment, rent, etc. And then I have a second checking account that does have a debit card attached. And that's where every Sunday I move my weekly allowance. And that's what I use for gas, groceries, Amazon, etc. So I had to go around and delete all of these things where my PayPal was attached to things. Amazon was attached to things. I used to get myself in trouble with Amazon. <laughs> yeah. And now it's just, that's what my weekly allowance is. And it is what it is. And it really helped me bring um, a sense of safety into my relationship with money. And 
it feels feels really good. And to be able to stop thinking about it so much because if it's not exciting to you and you find it boring or frustrating or whatever, you set it and forget it. I love that. We do the same thing. We have a fixed account that covers all those things. I'm never going to take money out of it because it's automatically paying the mortgage, the all those fixed expenses. And then we have a flexible money account and that's where the groceries, the Amazon, I'm trying to really go easy on the Amazon though. You're right. That gets me every time. It's tough. It's tough. Yeah, <laughs> it's tough. But sometimes a tool like that can, can, as long as you're not having to actively manage all the time, it can make it a lot easier to make good decisions. Yeah. It was a game changer for me. I, this conversation was worth a million, Sade. And thank you so much for your time and being amazing. Well, thank you so much for having me. I had a Absolutely. great time. Thank you, Sade, for spending time with us and sharing your knowledge about how women with father wounds often have very contentious relationships with money. And fathers have a very important social role involving provision and the protection of their daughters. And when they don't do that, our memories and experiences of money can get tangled up with our own behaviors. And later on in life, men and money can get further intertwined. We misuse it to invest in their dreams before our own. You can find out more about Sade and her courses in the show notes on bestfriendsfinance.com. And as always, If you're loving this podcast, please share it with any woman who would benefit from talking about money with friends. And one last huge favor, please give us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast provider and drop a few lines about what you like. It would mean the world to us because that helps other women find us and join the conversation. Be sure to look for us on Instagram and Facebook and don't forget to subscribe at bestfriendsfinance.com so you'll never miss an episode. Until next time.